Will you turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 7, verses 21 through 25? I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Great mighty fortress, our God, come and help me now. I want to be faithful to your truth, both in my words and in my affections. And I long for there to be a resonance in this people both in right understanding and in right feeling, so that this is a worshipful moment for us as a people, and it yields the fruit of obedience, a hopeful humility and a humble hope. Forbid, O God, that when we are done, any would be willing to make peace with the law of sin or the body of death. But grant, I pray, there to be born in this moment a resolve to fight with all our might and put to death the deeds of the body that we might live in holiness and righteousness all our days, not presenting our members as instruments of wickedness, but instruments of righteousness and love. Lord, work a great work, now I pray, as your word is unfolded. Give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, wills to resolve obedience at any cost. And so get glory for your Son, Father. We pray in his name. Amen. Same old question. Is this text that John just read about Paul's Christian experience? Or is it a description of Paul before he was a Christian? If it's the former Christian experience, then we can see ourselves here and learn heaps about biblical realism and how to live for Christ in these sinful bodies, in this sinful age. Answer is, I've argued, that it is Christian experience. And therefore, um, I'm going to give you more arguments. I've given you seven. I'm going to give you two more this morning. And then, Lord willing, we will wrap up Romans 7 next week. So that come September, we'll be moving into chapter 8. And I said last week, and I'll say it again now, that I don't pile up arguments to defend this view 
for their own sake. I happen to believe that when there's a good foundation, there's a clearer explanation. That when you know why something is true, you understand the truth better. Therefore, if I can give you ample reasons for why you can see yourself in this chapter and not just some pre-Christian experience, then I think those ample reasons will help you get a handle on who you are and help you to fight the fight of faith more valiantly than you might have otherwise. And practically, pastorally, the goal is to move you away from the presumption of perfection and away from the despair and hopelessness of perfection. I've said plainly several times, people can err by saying, yes, perfection is demanded and I've arrived. And that's pride. And others can say, yes, perfection is demanded and there's no hope I will ever arrive. And they despair. And both lose Christ. And there's a biblical realism in this chapter that we so need to grasp for ourselves, for our children, for those we love, to help steer them and help them navigate the tremendously difficult waters of this fallen world. A humble hope and a hopeful humility is what we're after. Argument number eight. It's an answer to a counter-argument. The counter-argument would say... Focusing on verse 24 now, second half of the verse. Would a Christian really describe himself as not free from the body of this death? Would a Christian say, who will set me free from this body of death? Would a Christian think of himself as trapped, enslaved, imprisoned? In a body of death. And the other side would say, Christians shouldn't talk like that. They don't talk like that. My response to that is, can a real Christian not say, who will deliver me from this body of death? Not enough of you say that. You feel it, but you won't say it. There are people in this room who've known Christ for decades who've never said that out loud. You know what? Your kids need to hear you say that. Your wife or husband needs to hear you say that. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? It would transform relationships. Your small group needs to hear you say that. Paul was about a hundred times more sanctified than anybody in this room. He not only said it, he wrote it for 10 million people and 20 centuries to read. Come on, let's get real with each other with our mouths. And not go home and say, yeah, that's right, that's what he said, and that's, I'm just a loser, blah, blah. But you don't ever say out loud in a group, I'm so needy. 
So you might think you're needy and you might try to act needy, but you come across as a pretty self-assured, got-it-all-together person in the small group. And to your kids, you never make mistakes, etc. Paul said it. I think we ought to say it. Now, what does it mean? Can a Christian say it? Don't just take my word for it. Let's ask now, what about this argument that Christians shouldn't talk this way? They shouldn't say, who will set me free as though I'm not free? I'm not free. Who will set me free? Of course, the answer is given in verse 25. Thanks be to God. He'll do it through Jesus Christ. So I want to ask now, if a Christian can say this, how can I defend that and what does it mean? First, let's do this. Let's make sure we clarify what it does not mean. That's one of the best ways to get a handle on, on what some things mean. What is he not saying when he pleads, cries out for deliverance from a body of death. Body of death. What's he saying? Here's what he's not saying. He is not saying that he or God regards the body as itself evil and the spirit good and salvation is to get the two separated. There's a lot of philosophies and a lot of religions who see the body as evil and the spirit as good. Material things are not real and they're like a burden and a weight. They're like a cocoon to a butterfly who wants free and get rid of that cocoon. Good riddance. And now he can fly. That's the way a lot of religions and a lot of philosophies think about body and spirit. Material and immaterial. And emphatically, that is not what Christianity Teaches. Christianity does not look upon the material world as evil, and it does not look upon the body as evil, and it does not conceive of salvation as deliverance from the body. For example, 1 Corinthians 10.25, Paul meets this philosophy at Corinth, people saying don't eat certain things, and certain things are unclean, and so on, and here's the way he responds in 1 Corinthians 10.25, Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking any questions for conscience sake. And here's his reason. He quotes the Psalms. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. I mean, this man has a massive free view of material stuff. If God made it, it's good. That's his point. The body is not a piece of junk, and we long for death to get rid of this junk or this cocoon so that we can be spirits the rest of eternity. The immortality of the soul is not the ultimate hope of the believer. What is? Resurrection of the what? The body. That's the ultimate hope of the believer in a new heavens and a new earth, and it'll have substance. Just like that has substance. God did not create, create this world to junk it and say it was just a little intermediary thing and I never intended to keep it and it's just troublesome and so salvation is to get rid of it and so there'll just be immaterial spirits forever and ever. 
That scared me to death as a kid. And I'm glad it is not true. What about the body? 1 Corinthians 6.13, Paul said, The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. That is an amazing statement. You ever heard that statement before? The Lord is for the body. That's 1 Corinthians 6.13. So... Salvation, deliverance, does not consist in getting rid of the body. Oh, Paul is really radical about this. He he says things that just, if you stop and think about them, for example, he says in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6, You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Guess what? Your body is not yours. It is God's, doubly God's if you're a Christian. He made it, and secondly, he bought it with his blood. Your body belongs to Jesus Christ. You are a trustee. He can take this body anytime he wants. He took Bob Heinrich. Bob Heinrich's body belongs to Jesus. And he took it. And he will give it back again. Full, complete, free of fungus, magnificent, beautiful, no more disease. You are not your own. You don't call the shots. You inhabit your body like a tenant. Now, what will you do with it? That's the question. Will you just give it away to all the kinds of sins that tempt it? Or will you, like Paul, pommel your body and bring it into subjection and make it the instrument of righteousness? Christ is going to raise this thing from the dead. You may not want it back, but you will get it back and it will be glorious. Listen to Philippians 3.20. When he comes... Christ will transform the body of our lowly estate into conformity to the body of his glory. You don't have to worry. If you think you're out of shape or you don't like your hair, you don't like your eyes, or you don't like your weight, or you don't like your color, or you don't like your blemishes, or you don't like whatever about yourself, don't worry about it. It will be perfect as God regards perfection. In fact, right now, it probably is the way God wants it to be. And you better not bellyache too much about it. Romans 7.24 now. Let's see what we've got. What have we accomplished here? Who will set me free from the body of this death? All I've done so far is say what it does not mean. When he says that, 
Who's going to set me free from this body? He doesn't mean, who's going to get me out of this cocoon so I can fly in the spirit? Who's going to get me free from this intrinsically evil material thing called body? He doesn't mean that. Well, what does he mean then? What does he mean? What is body of death? What is body, this body of death or body of this death? Well, two things. He means this body's going to die. It's under a curse. Whereas by one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death came to all men because all sin, it's coming to everybody because of sin. We're under a curse. The body is going to die. So when he calls it the body of this death, the first meaning I think that he has in his head is it's it's a goner. It's going to die. Second thing I think he means is this body so often is treasonous. It is complicitous. It joins forces with sin and becomes the base of operations where sin takes me captive and makes me fulfill its passions and do sin. The body is not intrinsically sinful, but oh, do many of our sins come through this avenue. It becomes a kind of base of operations where this enemy called sin sets itself up and then takes captive the body and the members of our flesh. And then we present them to sin as instruments of wickedness, chapter 6 says. And in that sense, according to chapter 7, verse 5, it bears fruit for death. We yield to its treasonous temptations to us and it bears fruit for death. And so it's it's. It's a body of death in that it is cursed and under the Adamic fall and is going to die. And because it joins forces with sin and bears fruit for death. And so it's a body of death. Now look at chapter 8, verse 10. It's just a few verses down if you're with me at chapter 7. And I think you'll see a confirmation of this. If Christ is in you. Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. The body is dead. That is, it's as good as dead. It's going to die. It's the effect of the curse. Sin has brought it on. It's going to happen. So I think Paul is crying out in verse 24 of chapter 7, Who will set me free from this body of death? Not who's going to separate me from the intrinsically evil thing called material body, but rather who's going to deliver me from these enslaving temptations in this life? And who in the end is going to fix this body so that it doesn't do this anymore? No more disease, no more temptation, and is the glorious body. And the answer to that is Jesus in both cases. Look at verse 11, following verse 10 in chapter 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Through the spirit who dwells in you, this body's going to be raised. Now, here's something implied in what I just said. Let me make it explicit. What you've just heard is that redemption... Deliverance, liberation comes to saints in stages. 
That was implicit in verses 10 and 11 of Romans 8. Let me explain. It said in verse 10, your spirit is alive. Well, once we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now your spirit is alive. So that much redemption you have. Now you, you have your sins forgiven. You're justified. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. These are all advances on our inheritance. These are all now salvation. Glorious things. My sins are forgiven. My guilt is gone. No more condemnation. Spirit alive. Indwelt by Christ. But that's not all of redemption. Look at Romans 8.23. We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We are waiting for the redemption of our body. Waiting. You want to know why you got problems? Why you're tempted to sin? Why there's disease in the world? We're waiting. Now that redemption of our bodies, which is coming at the resurrection, was bought by Jesus at Calvary. Secured, absolutely. The payment has been paid. You can't add any payment to his payment. The debt is paid for the purchase of your body. But redemption is applied to us in stages. I'm forgiven immediately on my first act of faith. Justified. Righteousness imputed to me. All my condemnation taken away. The Holy Spirit put into my life. Fellowship with the living Christ. Now. What a taste of paradise as we sang. But oh, how we groan. Oh, how we groan. The groaning of Romans 7 is the groaning of battle. The groaning of all the disease in this church is the groaning of the not yet of Romans 8.23. We wait. So, here's my answer. My eighth argument Can a Christian, should a Christian say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ I'm going to be delivered. Yes, a Christian should say that. That's argument number eight. Here's number nine. It's another response to a counter argument. I think this is one of the stronger ones on the other side. I gave you what I thought the strongest one was last week. This may be the second strongest. It comes from verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. Let me read these two verses and then show you how the other side argues against the view that we're talking about Christian experience in Romans 7. Romans 8, 1 and 2 say, There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
Therefore, chapter 7 is pre-Christian. You are not yet in Christ. You don't have the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus freeing you yet because there's so much defeat in Romans 7. And there's victory in Romans 8 too. And therefore, they're describing two sides of conversion. The front side before it happens and the back side after it happens. That's the argument. And it's stronger yet because notice the phrase at the end of verse 2, law of sin. See that little phrase? You are freed from the law of sin. Then look, let your eyes go back up to verse 22 and 23 where it says, I joyfully concur in the law of God, in Romans 7, 22, with the law of God in my inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind making me a prisoner or taking me captive to the law of sin. That's the same phrase as in 8.2. So, here you have 7.23 and he says, the law of sin is making me captive. And you have 8.2 saying, the Spirit of Christ has set me free from the law of sin. Conclusion, chapter 7 is pre-Christian. That's the argument. So my question is, um, is it that simple? When Paul says in Romans 8, 2, that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free, this principle, this rule, this authority of sin, does he mean it never gets the upper hand? Does set me free from the law of sin in verse 2 of chapter 8 have to mean it never takes me captive? It never asserts itself as an alien slave master over my life and brings me into temporary captivity. Does it have to mean that? Because we've seen eight other arguments to the effect that probably doesn't mean that. And I don't think it has to mean that. Um, an argument from the immediate context of Romans 8. Look at verse uh, 13 of Romans 8. There Paul says that we are to put to death the deeds of the body. So he's exhorting Christians, as this body of death commits treasonous acts with the power of sin, and they unite to bring temptation against you, your job is put them to death. Reckon your body dead. Don't let it triumph. But I don't think Paul would have said do that if it weren't a real battle and you sometimes don't do that. I think he said that's the battle. Now do that and you will get victory often because you have been set free. Or... Consider chapter 6, verse 13, same point, different words. It says in chapter 6, verse 13, Do not go on presenting your the members of your body to sin. Because this, this law of sin is trying to take you captive all the time. Don't present your members. Don't agree with it. Don't commit treason. Don't yield. Don't sell out. And give your members over to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. I think he means the battle is real. Sometimes that happens. Don't let it happen. 
So I, I find these pointers that this statement in, in chapter 8, verse 2, where he says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. He doesn't mean free in the sense of absolutely never do you fall prey to this tempter and this law. Well, what does he mean? How can you say it positively? Verse 14 of chapter 6 says, Sin shall not be master over you. So right after saying, don't let it be master, he says it won't be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Now that's the same flavor as chapter 8, verse 2. And they're back to back there in chapter 6. Don't let it be master, it won't be master. And we got over in chapter, take the, take the chapter division out of the way in between... 7 and 8, and you've got, who delivered me from this body of, of death and I'm being taken captive to the law of sin? And the Spirit of Christ has set me free from the law of sin. Because the victory here is one that is real and decisive. So here's the way I would, I would say it. Most people agree in interpreting chapter 6 that the decisive final power of sin to dominate and destroy your life has been broken. The decisive final power of sin to destroy your life has been broken. And in that sense, you're free. You are set free. So when he says in 723, the law of sin takes me captive... And in 822, I'm free from the law of sin. I think he means I'm free from the law of sin as my final and chief condition. It's not my chief condition. It's not my final condition. The Spirit often gives me victory. The Spirit is giving me increased victory. The Spirit will one day give me final victory. And in that sense... The enemy has been defeated, its back is broken, its head is severed, it's bleeding to death on the ground, and we fight it as a defeated foe. But that bleeding, dead, decisively defeated enemy can do a lot of harm if we don't fight. So we're called to fight as Christians as those whose victory has been bought and who will win. And that's why he can talk both in terms of such triumph and both in terms of such warfare and periodic and temporary defeat. So my argument number nine is uh, I don't think 8-2 has to mean absolute freedom from all sinning in order to give it precious, deep, wonderful meaning. And therefore it can cohere with what we've seen in chapter 7, verse 23. Now, here's my closing application. In view of all that the Bible says to us about our condition, our, our fallen condition with this body of death, and our, our sinful condition with the body acting in treason to join forces with the power of sin to tempt us, in view of the fact that there's a law of sin still active and there's a body of death, we should not be surprised 
or thrown off balance when we meet in ourselves and in our children and in our spouses and in our loved ones and in our colleagues and our roommates and our neighbors some really excessive and distorted bodily desires. Let me give you some examples and then say how I think we should respond. Remember, we are being redeemed in stages. Guilt is taken away right now. All your sins are forgiven right now. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in your life by faith if you're a believer right now. No condemnation is hanging over you at all right now. And yet, we wait for the redemption of our bodies. And those bodies are bodies of death. And places where sin sets up a base of operations often and tempts us with excessive and distorted bodily desires. For example, we see excessive desires for leisure tempting us to laziness and sloth. We see excessive desires for food tempting us to gluttony and all of its damaging effects. We see excessive desires for drink tempting us to alcoholism. We see excessive desires for sex, tempting us to lustfulness and fornication and adultery. And on top of all of those excessive desires, this law of sin operating in our members produces distorted Desires. That shouldn't surprise us either. The whole world is bent out of shape under the fall. That's much of the point of Romans 1 to 3. It's much of the point of part of Romans 8. For example, we see distorted desires for food. My father-in-law treated people before he died who had this incredible hankering for gray river clay in Georgia. They ate clay until it it filled their bowels and they died. He would warn them not to take laxatives because they would kill them. Why would anybody want to eat clay? Or... The whole issue of binging, bags of cookies, and so on. Those are distortions of a good thing called appetite and desire. Or we know about distorted desires of sex. The desire to have satisfaction with one of your own sex, whether homosexuality or lesbianism or bisexuality, is one of many kinds of fallen distortions. Another example would be the distortions of desire for pleasure, a kind of high, and people resort to marijuana 
or speed or cocaine or LSD. Why? What are these distortions, these odd, strange, queer, artificial ways of getting some kind of satisfaction and happiness? The, the world is just shot through our bodies. These bodies of death are shot through with excessive desires and distorted desires. There's not a person in this room who doesn't have one of those. Now, what do we do? I'm calling you, pleading with you week after week for a biblical realism in Jesus Christ. In Christ, by faith, we are united to him. Before any of this is fixed. You hear this now. By faith, we become united to Jesus. Faith alone. We are united to him And his purchased pardon becomes perfectly ours. And his perfect righteousness clothes this excessively desiring, distortedly desiring body. First, this is the gospel. Now, what's the issue then? The issue in your life, believer, is not, do I have excessive desires or do I have distorted desires? I say it with joy in my heart for those of you who struggle with homosexuality or with eating disorders or with drugs or with laziness. I say it with joy in my heart. The issue is not whether you have those excessive and distorted desires. The issue is, will you say, who will deliver me from this body of death? And look away from yourself and your resources and say, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, who gives the victory. And will you not make peace with the law of sin and find yourself at home in the body of death, but rather make war all your life until your body is finally redeemed at the resurrection. That's the issue. So you walk up to me at the end of the service in five minutes and and say, with trembling I'd like you to pray for me because I've never told anybody, but I really struggle with homosexuality. I'm not going to be surprised. Happens a lot. You say to me, nobody knows about what I'm doing with food. Nobody knows. I'm not going to be surprised. Nothing surprises me anymore. But I will call you to a massive hope. That through faith there is justification and through faith there is forgiveness. And then by that same Christ comes incrementally, sometimes in leaps and bounds and sometimes through long agonizing wrestling, a triumph that will be secured in the last day because of the blood of Jesus. And now the Lord be with you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his bright and 
forgiving and loving and patient countenance upon you and give you peace. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.